and welcome to the Courageous Mama podcast. When my children were small, I would look around to see who I'd like to take my influence from. There's loads of information out there on the internet, but there's nothing like someone with older children who you respect and admire, to whom you can take your big and your small questions. Someone who's got the scars and the victories, but is able to look back with humility and wisdom and share from their heart. And those are the sort of people I would look out for. If I could look at their children and think that's kind of where I'm trying to go, those are the values that I want to instill in mine and that would be the mum that I would just simply go and ask questions of. So for that reason, I asked a few people, who's inspired you? And I was introduced to Tanya West. Tanya has been a long-standing antenatal teacher for NCT and she's worked for the police as a leadership trainer and she's also a published author. But currently, she and her husband Guy are couples coaches and Tanya has written marriage and couple support programs. And as a coach and a couples counsellor, she's able to reflect on some of the emotions that we pick up in childhood or our children are picking up in childhood now that get in the way when we become adults. So with that wisdom, the sort of wisdom of hindsight, if you like, she's able to share what wounds we can avoid unintentionally inflicting on our children. She's a well thought through, self-effacing, fun-loving mum and granny now. And she's humble enough to know that she's still growing and learning at the same time as giving out pearls of wisdom to us. I loved many things about our conversation, but particularly when she had the epiphanic moment of handing her children responsibility for their own problems. That really appeals to me. I love how she handles that. She and Guy have four children with ages ranging from 36 down to 29. And they've also got three grandchildren and two more on the way. I started by asking her whether she had had a particular goal in mind for her parenting. Do you know I did? You did. You were ahead of your time. Well, I'll tell you why I had a goal for my parenting. It's not that I had a terrible childhood. As you know, I know people have real traumatic childhoods, and I, I didn't have a traumatic childhood, but it wasn't that happy. And there were many things that coming out of that, I thought if I ever have children, there will be things that I do very, very differently. And I think that did inform me. So when I became pregnant, which wasn't planned actually, we'd only been married a couple of months, so that wasn't in our plan to, to get pregnant quite so quickly. A bit embarrassing because I spent a year working in family planning research. <laughs> The universities. <laughs> oh, oh God! Dear, never was good at maths. You know, that's what it was all about. Oh, so anyway, hilarious. so we had this baby that we hadn't quite planned on having quite so soon, and and I knew that because of I was largely brought up by a childminder who wasn't actually a very kind person, and um, when I look back, I actually think she was a bit emotionally abusive. Um, so that I think that was one of the things wow. that I thought. Oh, actually. I'm going to do make different choices with my children and I want to be intentional. So I think my goal was to create a different kind of environment for my own children, mainly because mine had not been a happy one. So mm. that was my goal. And because that was my goal, when I was, I think, four or five months pregnant, I went on my first parenting course. Well because done. I thought, 
I really did. I'm a great believer in learning things. I'm, mm. I'm a lifelong learner. I'm always learning. I'm always reading Such a good and learning new things. Mm. And I thought if I'm going to do it differently, then I need to have some more information because yeah. I knew enough to know that if I don't get different perspectives, if I don't think about this in a different way, I'm going to end up repeating things mm. that happened to me that mm. I didn't like. So that's so I was very very intentional from the get-go and at my parenting course I was the only one who didn't have children that was actually pregnant with my first child oh wow yes so, I've had people on my parenting course who are pregnant I'm like yes yeah yes well, you go it was very unusual back then yeah it to do then or to do a parenting course at all back well, yes. then yeah so I want to drill down on something you've mm. just said because you talked about mm. your childhood not being particularly happy mm. and wanting a different experience for your children mm. And often parents do say to me, I just want my child to be happy. You know, what is happiness? Mm. I would say very simply that the happiness is about, about being connected and feeling connected. And I think because I was looked after by this lady who was had very strange ways, I didn't feel connected with the caregiver um, mm. or, or the parent. I don't think it necessarily, because I know that some people need to work and can't always be with their, their children preschool in the way that they perhaps would like to. Mm. But I think where the child goes and who the caregiver is, is really, really important. Mm. And I think probably there are a lot more kind of stringent things in place for, for caregivers now. Mm. Um, and so there should be. Yeah. But for me, a, a happy child is a child that is able to form really healthy and good connections mm. with their caregiver. Mm. whether that's um, a nursery whether that's a, a really good childminder whether that's a parent or a relative but someone who they can sort of really make good connections with that's so good to define that so you're not saying a happy child is one that you always say yes to absolutely no I think I, I think that could be a very unhappy child actually if you're always saying yes to them to be honest <laughs> So, yeah. yeah, no, not yeah. at all. But I think knowing that they're, they're really connected and that they're loved and emotionally secure is what makes for a happy child. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so what sort of ingredients do you put in to make sure that a child feels connected to you? Well, I think the number one thing is, is time. Mm. Actually, I don't think there's any shortcuts. You, you, can't, you can microwave so many things but you can't microwave relationships. Oh, I like that. And like there's that. there's just not not yeah. a shortcut really. So I think it's it's about it's about time and letting them know that you you want you want to be with them. Uh, and my husband was away a lot for example when our children were very small and even though he was out of the country a lot they always knew that he wanted to be with them. Yeah. And he would like leave them little notes and um, come back and tell them about his journeys and they always knew that even though he wasn't there that he wanted to be with them. And when he was home, they had his attention. Brilliant. And I think that's everything, really. Yeah. yeah. So from there, I want to talk about attachment, because I know that's something that, that mm. you're able to, to, um, to unpack a little bit. Mm. So I speak with a lot of parents about attachment, and there can be all sorts of perceptions mm. about what attachment really is. What do you think attachment isn't? Do you think there are any misconceptions out there? I think there probably are misconceptions about attachment. Um, I've certainly met people who think attachment's about giving giving your child everything, being with them all the time, uh, responding to them every every minute. So they allow themselves to be interrupted all the time by their children. So their children have the focus the whole time, the stage the whole time, as it were. 
and I don't always think that's that's particularly healthy. I think I think good attachment is about a child knowing exactly where they where they are, having having sort of reasonable boundaries in place, uh, knowing where they stand with you, knowing that they're loved, knowing that they're accepted, um, and valued, knowing that they're taken seriously. All those kinds of things are important, I think. Mm. And so boundaries, yes, great topic. I mean, how mm. did how did you put your boundary lines in place? Can you remember back that? That far now yours are in this. Well, do you know, I, I, I look back and I, I cringe at some of the things we did because some, some of the parenting advice back then was not advised now. And I can remember thinking that I'd got it really sorted with child number one, that we were very clear, these were the rules, this was what would happen if the rules were broken. And um, at that time it was okay to, or it was advised to, to smack a child if they didn't sort of keep a boundary mm. and we we did do that um and it's interesting with child number two when they came along um and did something I remember the first time I smacked them they were devastated the child and yeah. I just thought this isn't going to work yeah. and then it was later as I learned more about what really works for children I thought actually I don't think this is a great idea there are better ways of setting boundaries and keeping boundaries mm. but I think it took our second child to really teach us that so, so child number one kind of, yeah, I, I deserve that. That's absolutely, you know, he's fine with it. But child number two, completely different. Mm. And we realised that actually setting loving boundaries and limits was not about, it always seemed a bit strange to say you don't hit people and yeah. then smack a child. Yeah. But why, why would we do that? And, and the whole thing about, well, you hit a child but don't do it in anger. And that's, that's a really hard thing to get your head around too. So... We didn't used to smack a lot with our, our first child, but it's something we did do on occasion. Um, and I think it's something we did less and less. And by the time we'd got to child number three and four, we, we, we didn't smack at all. And what um, were your more effective ways? Our more effective ways were, um, again, then it would be things like, well, let's just take some time out to, to sort of se- separate you from the situation and think about that. And even, even now, I don't think I would do that because time out and isolating a child when they feel completely overwhelmed by feelings isn't, isn't always the best thing to do. Mm. So when I, mean, I look back at the things that we did do and I think, well, I don't know that I would do them now. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I they think, were an improvement on smacking Well, they were definitely. We know so much more now. Yeah, we do. Don't we? And I don't yeah. kind of, I just think, well, that's what we did. It was the 34 five years ago so mm. parenting advice changes all the time and information changes and I look back now and think well I wouldn't do that I would do different things um, but the timeout was quite funny because we instigated a timeout rule at the table for interrupting because we wanted to teach our children not to interrupt at the table and to listen to each other and we said anyone who interrupts will have to go and sit on the stairs for five minutes and what actually happened was Guy and I were always on the stairs <laughs> because, <laughs> because the children never interrupted. But every time we did, it was, that was an interruption. You need to go on the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> and we'd be sitting on our own stairs. Hoisted by your own petard. Exactly, on our own <laughs> stairs while our children were at the table thinking, actually, this is a bit ridiculous. <laughs> you need to think of another way of <laughs> forcing so a boundary. Actually, it was funny. That's it was great. funny. That's great. 
Did you explore any any of the intel out there, like Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram? Did that inform your parenting at all? It did inform my parenting. That was much later that I came across all the personality thing. Although I think I was very intuitively aware because I had children that were very, very different. And it was a real shock to my system because the first child was very active, very into everything, climbed everything, and, and still is. He's your is. adventurer. He's he your, still is your climbing grills. everything. Yes. But he was born doing that. That's uh-huh. what he did. And so he was hard work, but I knew what I was dealing with. And when my second child came along, he was completely different. He was a thinker, and he was an assessor, and he would risk assess things before he did things. And he would read the rules of games um, before playing. Do people do that? <laughs> it was, it was, I, I just couldn't believe it. I'm thinking, how, how, how has, how, how does this even happen? How can you have a child that's so different? And so he would literally, I want to read the rules before we play this game. And Is he the one who's gone on to be a barrister? Yes. Oh, <laughs> right. But from a very young age, you could you could kind of see that, and I thought, oh my goodness, each each child is very very different. Mm. And then number three came along, and that was my daughter, and she was completely different again. She was a real leader. She was a go getter. She was an organizer, and she she wanted to run the family, um, even though she was in nappies and toddling around. She <laughs> wanted to run things. Yeah. And um, and then we had our fourth child, and frankly. The truth is, if we'd only had Ben, I would think I was perfect. <gasps> yeah, number three for us. I would think I was the perfect parent. We were parent. so smug. <laughs> I would have been, but fortunately it was the fourth, and so I just considered it a real blessing. But he just, we only had to frown when we said no. He was responsive. He was happy all the time. He never really had a tantrum. He was just, and then he was a lovely teenager and is a lovely adult and just amazing. But if we'd only have one child, I would be sitting here very smug saying, do you know what? I think I'm actually quite perfect. (laughs) Got this nailed. Yeah, our third broke the mould. It was a very humbling experience (laughs) to realise it just been... (laughs) But each person felt like a person I needed to get to know. Oh, I like that. And it, Tell me about it, that. It wasn't just about applying some cookie cutter parenting technique. Yeah. It was this is a this is a new person that I need to get to know that's got a different way of communicating, that's got different things that are important to them, that is motivated by different things, that has got different interests, different way of thinking, different way of processing. Just completely different. And, and how I realized, did you apply yourself to all of that? Well, I think it's, in a way, there were principles that I worked with rather than this is what I do. And so the principle of getting to know someone is a bit like getting to know anyone. We get to know someone by spending time with them. And I don't know any other way of really getting to know someone other Mm. than spending time. So you spend time, you ask questions, you observe, you see what they're interested in. And we try to encourage all of our children in the direction of their interests. And I must admit, when we had our daughter, after two boys, I had this little dream of a ballerina. And I imagined myself with my little girl, with her bow in her hair, going off to ballet. And that wasn't who my daughter was. So I quickly realised that actually there's no point in putting my sort of ambitions on children you just have to see who are they who is this person reminds me a little bit of um, was it Michelangelo that was carving 
doing the carving of the angel. And somebody asked him a question about that and he said he was just releasing the angel within. Yeah. And for me, that's a metaphor of what it is to be a parent. It's like you carve away doing your best, setting boundaries, setting loving limits, spending time trying to guide. And what you're doing is you're chipping away, chipping away to release this angel within, this, this, Mm. this amazing person within. And each one is very different. And so each one requires a slightly different way of being and handling. And that's what makes parenting such an adventure. It does, doesn't it? It really does. And I know that a lot of the parents that I speak to have perhaps merged the word authority with control. You know, where, where, does, where does authority become control? Where can authority not be control? Where can boundaries be healthy? So as parents, would you agree with the concept that we are training our children or does that feel, does that feel uncomfortable? Well, I think that we are, we're training ourselves. <laughs> I certainly <laughs> felt like I was training myself. Yeah. And there were times when I would slip into control and, and become quite rigid because I wasn't handling myself very well. And so for me, parenting was as much about training myself. And I think that, that, that boundaries was around teaching. I would say I would use it as a teaching opportunity. When I was in a good place, when I was in a healthy place myself, then, then discipline became about teaching. It became about learning, which I, I think what the root the root of to discipline is it's to disciple it's to teach Mm. it's so that 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 you can learn and Mm. when I wasn't in a good place emotionally myself I owed much more to either being chaotic um, and slightly out of control because I wasn't in control of myself or being overly rigid and controlling and Mm. actually saying those things I hoped I would never say but did which was because I told you so Mm -mm -mm. and doing things just and, and exerting my influence as a parent and saying you'll do this because I'm telling you to do it and no I'm not going to give you an explanation just do it mm. but it was it said more about my lack of control than mm. anything else so I've lost sight of the question a little bit but so for me it, it's it's the training part was for me in self-awareness and self-discipline mm. and keeping myself in an emotionally healthy place so that I could set limits and for it to be not an authoritative controlling Mm, discipline, mm. but something where they could teach and grow and learn. Mm. But that only happened when I was in an emotionally healthy place. That's so good. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So now I'm going to ask you, what unsettled you? What didn't help you stay in that right frame of mind? I think there were times when, in the early days, when I had four at home and they were all quite young because I had uh, a child every sort of like two years 19 months so they were all quite close together it was actually on paper it's 85 87 89 and 91 Mm. and every time I write their birthdays I experience what it must feel like to be a very organized structured person (laughs) which I'm not feels good we tried for that we just failed miserably (laughs) so they were all at home together and the things I found difficult were when we didn't have a car and I couldn't get out and it was, you know, you needed something. And to get all four children out to go and get a pint of milk was difficult. I didn't have parents nearby that could help. And so there were times when it felt quite desperate. And there were certain times of the day when it felt particularly desperate. 
Mm. and it might be sort of like five o'clock and you're trying to do tea and you're trying to breastfeed a baby and trying to deal with a toddler and then the boys are having an argument and it just there were times when it just felt so so intense and those were the times when I think I reverted into the controlling parent and uh, or the shouty parent that I didn't mm. want to be but one of the things I did do well even when it was very pressured and I was coping on my own with four small children I always apologised mm. when I got it wrong. And I think this was something that I wanted to do differently from the outset. Mm. Because I, I was brought up in a children should be seen and not heard. You don't tell on adults, which is why I never, ever told, not for many, many years, how difficult our child carer was. I never told anyone because you don't tell on an adult. That was very, I was very much of that era. Right. And so I wanted very intentionally to bring our children up to know that adults are not infallible that they make mistakes mm. and when they make mistakes they need to own them and they need to stay sorry great and and also I wanted to teach them that they had every right to ask questions of an adult and to do it respectfully mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. not be disrespectful but it was okay to question an adult as mm. well and okay to ask for an explanation and we taught them that that was okay to do so when I did lose the plot which was fairly frequent I would always say you know mummy was wrong mummy was shouting and that's not helpful, and I'm mm. sorry. That's so good. And they were always, without exception, so forgiving. Oh. I think children are amazing. Yeah. When you're really honest with them, and you say, I handled that badly, yeah. uh, for whatever reason, um, I was shouting, and that wasn't helpful, and I was cross, and I shouldn't have been, and I'm sorry. They were genuinely really forgiving, and actually, those when I that's when, when you asked about discipline and would I associate it with training with children, and I said I think I would associate it with training for myself. That that's kind of what I would mean because in those times I was able to teach more about emotions and um, what it is to be aware of our emotions, to handle them. Mm. But the teaching often came out of me doing it badly and apologizing. Right. And then actually the children were really receptive to hearing and learning about emotional management because it was coming out of me doing it wrong. Modelling it. Mm. Which I'm not saying that that's the best way or the good way. I'm just saying that's what it was like. That was the reality of having small children at home on your own a lot of the time. Yeah. yeah. And that's where a lot of the teaching happened. Yeah. Me sort of getting it wrong. I mean, I did get it right as well. But I'm I, sure. <laughs> I can remember using those times to teach yes. about emotions yes and they learned that yes mummy makes mistakes and she shouts and and I shout sometimes and we would talk about what was going on and how we could handle things better yeah and then you teach them don't you that you know you can clear up your mess some things are inexcusable but nothing's mm. unforgivable is it that's right yeah. we're not perfect we're just doing the, the best the best we can and do you think sometimes there's a pressure to be perfect do you think that's out there well, I think it's interesting how I started to think about this when I had small children, how when you go to people's houses, it's sometimes a stress because they're busy tidying up before you come. And, and now, of course, we've got Facebook and we've got Instagram and we can project any kind of image we want to mm. of parenting and what our, our home is like and mm. what our family is like. The curated life. And I started to not do that. I started to not tidy up when people came. I started not to worry about cooking sort of amazing food, but just ordinary food when people came. And I think 
I think sometimes there's something about just being real with people totally. and just saying, this is me. You know, I wanted people to see me as I actually was. Mm. Because then you can have real connection with people. And in terms yeah. of me being in an emotionally healthy place, because I didn't have my husband around a lot of the time, I was on my own a lot of the time, then actually relationships with other people were key. And if those relationships were based on something false, mm. because I'd quickly tidied up, or I was projecting an image of having it together when I didn't, mm. then that wasn't really going to provide me with the support I needed. Yeah, you don't attract the friendship group that are attracted Absolutely. to the, the messy, vulnerable you. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm just interrupting this podcast for a moment to say, if you're enjoying The Courageous Mama, I think you'll love the book Parenting for Life. This is what readers have to say. This book is absolute gold dust. I bought this book to give away, but I'm keeping it. This book has so many helpful suggestions for the modern family, and it's helpful for our marriage too. This book is a must in every home. If I was able to buy just one book on parenting, this would be the book. Parenting for Life is available to listeners at a special rate on the Courageous Mama website and blog. www.thecourageousmama.com there's a link in the show notes. And who did influence you? So you said that your parents weren't nearby and that Rob was, um, that Guy was away a lot. Yeah. Um, so who did influence you? Well, I think I had, I was part of a local church. Mm. And so there were lots of people through the local church and they, they, they were all, at this, uh, there were a lot of people at the same kind of life stage as me. And that was really helpful. So I think relationships there and also my National Childbirth Trust group mm. were great. So people I've met antenatally, again, we were all in the same stage. So we we're all experiencing the same kind of struggles and joys and challenges at the same time. And that's really helpful to have mm. people at the same stage as yourself. Mm. So you can talk about these things and know that somebody's going to get that or understand that or have a tip about that. So, um, so that and, and also more parenting courses because not only did I do one before the children were born, I did about four or five others. And as different ones came out, um, I, I would sort of put myself up for because I wanted to learn all the time there must be better ways of doing this, there must be different ways of doing this. And can you remember having some sort of epiphanic moments on the way? Yes, what, what, I can. What sort of epiphanies did you have? Yes, one of them was around not tell it, telling your children what you do want rather than what you don't want. Ah, yes. So instead of saying, don't do this, don't do that, start telling them what you do want and framing it in the positive. Yes. And that was a really great thing. And the other great, great epiphany, if you like, was recognising whose problem it was and teaching them how to problem solve at a young age. Ah, so open that up a bit. And so I'd got into the habit of, because there was always arguments, because my children were always fighting, and they didn't have toy guns and things like that because they didn't want to encourage violence, but it made no difference. They would take the, um, the, the screw legs off a plastic table and use them as weapons and so there was always war going on it was always hectic this was not a peaceful home where I sat I was baking with my four children all up on chairs I would look at those kind of families and dream about what that would be like but mine was much more chaotic I was just busy teaching them not to kill people and um, while other friends it seemed were teaching their children to sit quietly at the table and not tip their drink up so we were in very different places yeah so it was quite hectic 
but it was very easy to be drawn into their disputes. It'd be, mum, he's done this, can you do that? And I would go in, right, you do this, you do that. Then I went on this parenting course about, and there was a session on whose problem is it? And I suddenly realised that I was being drawn in to sorting out all their problems. And this wasn't helping them. So I changed my approach and it was amazing. So they would come to me and they would say, he found that. And I'd say, oh my goodness, it sounds like you've got a problem. And um, what what can you do about that? And they, they, they didn't know what to say because they expected me to sort it. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll take the toy away that you're arguing over and I'll put it here. You go away and think about what you can do to sort the problem out. And if you need my help, come back and I'll help you. So they started to sort their own problems out and they were amazing. And they'd come back and say things like, well, I think I should have it um, until the pinger goes. And then when the pinger goes, he can have it. And I'd say, brilliant. They're so resourceful. So resourceful. We're so busy solving. I was amazed at how Mm. good they were. And sometimes they really were stuck. And then I'd say, okay, well, can I, do you want my help? Can I help you with your problem? Mm-hmm. But my language was always very clear. Got it was that. their problem, but I would offer some help. Mm. So then I would say, well, here are some, gest- some suggestions for mm-hmm. you to choose from. You could do A, B, or C. What would you like to do? So I was still putting it on them, and then they would choose one of the options that I'd come up with. And that was absolutely groundbreaking. And what sort of ages were they when you did, did that? I think they were around four, six, eight, yeah. that sort of age. Because you're probably still doing that now then, aren't you? What sort of... Well, you know, when you assist them with a the problem, going, hey, you know, what, what do you want to do Well, actually, now? you're absolutely right. It's it's yeah. more a kind of coaching approach. Yeah. Uh, and saying, what have you thought of and um, yeah. how can I help? But it's, I hadn't thought of doing it with young children. Mm. And I think when they're very young, you... you, you you do get involved because when they're toddling around and they're bashing someone over the head, you do need to sort of get involved and take the thing away and sort it out. Mm-hmm. But when they began to be a little bit older, they I found they were brilliant at problem solving. Great at and it children. gave them a confidence. And I'll tell you a funny story, actually. Mm. They were so good at problem solving. My daughter, she was four years old and she went to a preschool and she came home one, one evening and one afternoon and she said, there's a boy at school. And she said, he's pulling my hair and he's stealing my pencil. And, you know, I, and, and I don't know what to do. And so I said, oh, it sounds like you've got a real problem there. What, what, what ideas, you know, what do you think you could do? So she came up with some ideas. And she said, have you got some ideas? So I said, well, I've got an idea to think about. She said, what's that? So I said, well, how about inviting him for tea and, and then having a talk to him? So she said, that's what I'll do. I'll do that. I'll invite him for tea. So she did. So she invites him for tea. So the little boy comes in and I'm in the kitchen making a drink and she walks him straight in the front door, straight in the lounge, sits in front of the fire before he's had his drink. She said, now, I've invited you here because there's something I want to talk to you about. (laughs) At school, you're pulling my hair and stealing my pencil and I'd like you to stop. Wow. And did he? And he just said, all right then. And he did. It was, but it was, I, I was in the kitchen thinking, cannot believe she is just being so direct. Yeah. But it was like, yes, I've invited you here. This is the purpose. This is what's happening. It was so assertive. It wasn't aggressive. Mm-mm. It was just, this is what I'd like you to do. Mm. And, and that's then, real empowerment. It was isn't it? brilliant yeah. because then I was able to say to her, Emma, that was a brilliant way 
of handling the situation did that so well you were firm but you were lovely and they're still really good friends oh how about that to this day <laughs> that's <Yeah>. so funny sweet <laughs> still doesn't pull her hair. <laughs> um not that i know of i'm sure she would let me know and him know if he did <laughs> and going back to when you learn new things because you went on parenting mm. courses or you know mm. somebody gives you a tip and, and so on you can learn new things can't you and and, and then it takes a while, doesn't it, to sort of hardwire into your psyche. Did you find that, you know, sometimes you would go, ah, oh, I've got that, I, that's that trick that I was supposed to do at that point or that tool I wanted to use? Or did you find that once you'd got it, it was just part of who you were? I found I needed reinforcements. Mm. So, so Guy and I would do the parenting together mm. and then I would talk about things with friends so then we would remind and help each other. Mm. So it was helpful to have Guy on the same page doing the same thing so mm. we could remind each other but it was also helpful to discuss it with friends and do things with other people and with groups of people and we set up little groups in our home as well where we would discuss things to do with parenting and talk about how we were getting on. And I found that really helpful because, of course, I forget. Of course, I slip into sort of chaos and lose my emotional balance and it all goes pear-shaped. But then it's great to be able to share it with other people and hear about what they do and how they dealt with that. So I found actually relating to other parents really helpful. That and that happen. goes back to being a bit vulnerable again, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And you've mentioned that Guy was supportive. Mm. I mean, I have some clients who would mm. say, my husband just would call that psychobabble or he would, you know, not be on board with that. So what would you say to that, that parent where one of them really wants to sort of move on with a new mm. tool and the other one's like, yeah, whatever? I think it does make it harder, uh, but I think you need to have uh, friends or people you can talk to who are on the same page who can support you. Mm. I think it is hard to do by yourself you can mm. um, but it is harder I think so I would say find find someone that you you can talk to and be encouraged by yeah because yeah. it's hard just to to keep yourself motivated and encouraged if you're mm. the only one trying something out but if it's you and a friend or someone you've met or someone in your group then actually it's 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 much healthier and, and, and better for you to have someone to talk to mm. And it's so hard also, isn't it, if if one parent's sort of got got a tool that's really working, really cutting through and really getting a great response out of the children, the other one hasn't, and you're standing there and that other one is using their tool. So let's say, you know, mm. the husband is, is swooping in with old habits. Mm. It's so hard, isn't it, to not jump in and go, ah! <laughs> what would you say to those Well, do you parents? know, it's... I think something I learned very, very early on when I had baby number one and I, it was very tempting for me to, every time Guy did something with the baby, I found myself wanting to say, oh no, don't do it like that. Oh no, don't do the nappy like that. Oh, when you do the bath, oh, don't, don't do that. Don't do this. And I, I would catch myself doing it and think, actually, this is not helpful because what I really want is for my husband to be confident with this baby and proactive 
Mm. And if I keep on saying, don't do this, don't do that, how about this, how about that, then mm. actually he's going to feel undermined and just say, well, you do it then. Mm. And so that meant that some things, so he would like go up and whenever he bathed the baby, it looked like it was absolute carnage up in the bathroom. There was stuff everywhere, there was talc everywhere, <laughs> there were toys everywhere. It was just whenever he looked after the children, he just looked after the children and there was mess everywhere and this wasn't done, that wasn't done. Mm. And so there were things, sometimes I was successful, sometimes not, but I would try not to say too much. And as an antenatal teacher, I would observe mothers that would continually sort of criticise what their partners, husbands were doing yeah. with the children. And it was so counterproductive. They start to retreat. They start to retreat. It yeah. doesn't It doesn't work. And some things don't matter quite so much. Yeah. So I think what I would say is what you would do with children, choose your battles. Yes. So there might be something that you think is really important in terms of maybe they're doing something and you can see it's really damaging a child's self-esteem. And that's really important. So you might want to, not in the heat of the moment, but outside of the situation, have a conversation say, I'm noticing that when you do this, this mm. is the effect it's having. And I'm wondering if we could really think about how we handle that together. Mm, mm. So it's, it's, uh, it's out of the heat of the situation and it's uh, how can we deal mm. with their low self-esteem together. And I'm noticing that this has that effect and I'm wondering. So it's put in a kind of, we're in this together as a team. How can we as a team address the low self-esteem rather than I want you to do everything the way that I do it and I'm going to criticise and snipe yeah. um, until you end up going, oh, well, you, you sort the kids out and I, I'm, I'm disengaging. And even the language that you use there, which comes very naturally to you, you used I, you used observation. There was no you're doing such and such because that, that can be so hard to hear, can't it? Oh, really? I don't, don't, well, I, I'm good at that too. <laughs> Take your word, Plen yeah. Plenty of, you know, you do this, you do that. But I've noticed that the effect of that, whenever I do do that approach, the effect is to drive a wedge and to create defensiveness. Yeah. And, well, if you think you can do it so well, you get on with it. Mm. So I have learnt through the experience of doing it badly that actually approaching it differently gets a different kind of result. Yeah. That's so good. That's Wouldn't so want you true. to think I was brilliant. <laughs> and I think that I, I think that is a um, a trap that um, people can fall into. You spend a lot of time with married couples. I spend mm -hmm. a lot of time with parents. Mm -hmm. At no point would I say I've nailed it. I'm learning, and I, I bet you would say the same. Do you know? I only, as a grandparent, I'm learning. And I said to my daughter-in-law, I said, are there any books you're reading or learning that you're doing on parenting that I can do as well so that I know what's important to you in bringing up your children? Oh, I love that. And she said, actually, I'm reading this book. And it was the whole brain child. Yeah. So I said, oh, well, I, I'll get the book. So I'm on Amazon getting the same book because I want to support their parenting approach so in, because I know how important that was for me. So I'm reading this book, and in it, I had another Eureka moment. Oh, yeah. And this was amazing, and I'd n I never realised it. And it was about helping children to process things that they've, a disappointment or an upset or a trauma. Okay. And, and how they need to rehearse what happened as a way of piecing it together properly so they don't then have 
hang-ups and phobias and all that kind of thing. And I didn't realise that when I was bringing my children up, if something happened that upset them, I would use a distraction technique. Oh, you're all fine. Kiss it better. Let's go and have an ice cream. Let's move on to the next thing. I didn't realise, but I was reading this book. Oh my goodness! And then the next day, I had a chance to put it into practice. Where my twenty-month-old granddaughter dropped a quite heavy plastic tiger on her foot, Uh her bare foot, and it was really painful, and she cried. And I picked her up. And uh, she pointed to her foot and I said, that's right, a really heavy plastic tiger fell on your foot and it was very ow, very ow, but now it's all better and you're okay. And she looked at me, yes, that's what happened. And then she pointed to her foot again. And so I repeated the story. And we did this five or six times, the same story, the same thing, and it was ow, 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 and now, and you cried and, and, and now it's okay. And after the fifth or sixth time of repeating what happened, it's almost like I could see the pieces come together in her brain. It's almost like she herself could now log that as something that happened. It hurt. It was painful. She cried. It was very ow. She stopped crying. She was comforted and she's all right now. Okay, I'm ready to move on. So I'm quite intrigued by that. But tell me, when you declare that she was okay hmm. had she got to a place where she would say that about herself she'd stop crying yeah yeah so okay. she stopped crying so she was all calm and so this is what happened and you were upset you were crying and now it's okay and mm. yeah. that's so interesting it's isn't it because because of course what what we we sometimes can make the mistake of doing is scooping up a child saying, saying they're okay, okay too quickly yeah. yes yeah and they're like they're no, not okay. so not okay yeah. yeah yeah so you were waiting for that moment yeah. you see she was okay so she built her yeah. narrative around yeah your words that's exactly it building a narrative and yeah. i'd i wouldn't have done that before and that's something i learned just the other week from this book and yeah. i thought my goodness you know we never get to the end of learning i hope not and just because i've got four children they're all grown up I, i'm no expert i'm still learning and now here i am with my granddaughter learning yeah. that actually it's much better to rehearse what happened and go over and over and over something so that she can properly understand herself yeah. than to too quickly either tell her she's okay when yeah. she's not yeah. or distract her and move her on to mm. something before she's had a chance to really work out what it was that Because then they've got an open story, haven't they? And I didn't realise that. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. I'm always intrigued to know what pitfalls we might be falling into mm. that we don't know. You've just given me a classic of, you know, we can go, you're okay when you're not okay and leave them a sort of open-ended, unresolved story. What sort of attachment issues can we cause as parents without realising it? I think a lot of the things that we see coming up in our couple coaching is to do with emotions and where where children have had emotional experiences and not been able, there, there's, there's been a, a lack of emotional honesty in families. Um, and that's meant that, that children have had issues that they've never ever talked about and then that has caused issues in their own adult relationships and it's affected their trust and their ability to trust their partner Mm. and those questions am I lovable am I am I worthy am I good enough when those questions aren't answered affirmatively as people are growing up it seems that people carry those questions into their adult relationships 
And then when things crop up in the adult relationship, it triggers this wound of, am I lovable? Am I acceptable? Am I good enough? Mm. Those questions that I think we all have mm. as, as, as children, as babies and children, we have those questions. Am I okay? Mm. Fundamentally, am I okay? Am I lovable? Am I worthy? Am I acceptable? And when there's any question mark over any of those questions, we, we carry those questions into our adult relationships and it really, it really handicaps us emotionally. Mm. And just to clarify, I mean, you know, you might say that to a parent and they say, oh, I tell my child I love them every day. That's not what you're saying, is it? You're talking about unresolved sort of emotional moments, issues and wounds. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's very easy to say words, but, but it's, it's how, how, how do we go about showing a child that they're loved? that they're accepted, that they're valuable, that they're worthy. And that's a lot more than just what we say. It's how we behave, it's, it's, it's the consistency of our behaviour, it's our values, it's the kind of culture we create in our families. And I think we, we I, I look at my own parenting and I, I'm very, my husband says I'm very critical of myself. And in, in some ways I am, I like to think I'm realistic really. Uh, I think I made lots of mistakes, there's lots of things looking back that I would do differently. But one of the things that we were very clear about were what, what were our values and what, what was important to us as a family mm. and how are we going to live those things out. And we may not be perfect, in fact we're definitely not, but we were very certain that we wanted all our children to, to know and feel loved, to know that they were important, that they were unique, that they were special, that they were worthy, that they were lovable. Mm. that if they did things wrong it wasn't that they were wrong we were very keen to distinguish between a person's behavior child's behavior and who they were excellent mm. and and that that's kind of core core value of ours that everyone is special everyone is unique everyone is worthy and everyone is worthy of love mm. and knowing that was 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 crucial to us and can you think of some ways that you sewed that into family life, some sort of practical examples of that? I think we would always use labels very carefully. So we would say, we would always say, you've done a really helpful thing, not you're a helpful person. Excellent. Because That's we know so that good. positive labels can be as damaging as negative yeah. labels. And we know plenty of people who were always told that they were helpful, that they were the good girl or whatever. And then they grow up thinking that they need to be the people pleaser and they're not very good at being assertive and putting their own needs first. So mm. we knew, and again, I'd learned that from parenting courses, that, that labelling, positively or negatively, cannot be helpful for a child. So something that we found quite easy to get into our language was to make that distinction. That, that was an unhelpful thing to do. That was an unkind thing to do. Not you're an unkind person. Yeah. And we were very aware of a principle that we picked up, I think through one of the earlier courses that we'd done, was about um, the will of a child can be very strong. It can be very strong-willed. Some children are just very strong-willed. And I had four of them. Mm. And apart from number four, he wasn't so strong-willed, but uh, certainly three very, very strong-willed children. And the will can be very strong, but the spirit of a child is very sensitive. Mm. And... And that was something we were always really, really aware of. So even when they were acting out, even when they were doing naughty things or unhelpful or unkind things, we always sought to bear in mind that that behaviour needed addressing 
Um, yes, boundaries needed to be put in place. There needed to be consequences of that particular piece of behaviour. But who the person was, their spirit, was really sensitive. So we were really, really careful never to say, you are a disappointment, you are this, you are that. Mm. And, and really go for sort of who a child was in their, in their corner, in their spirit. We were really careful not to do that. That's great. That's great. That's so important, isn't it? And you really touched important. on values there as well. So how did you sow values into family life? I have a hilarious story to tell you. Go on. <laughs> I read a book. Yeah by Stephen Covey called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Family. Love it. And <laughs> in that book, he's got this idea of a family mission statement where yeah, yeah. you all gather round and you decide what the family's going to yeah. be about. So fresh from my book, we sat around the table and they were round about um, three, five, seven, nine, something like that. Yeah. And, and I said, right, you know, family mission statement, what is this family all about? And the nine-year-old was just like, oh, the family mission statement, and they didn't want to talk about it, and it was, I thought, how are we going to get this out? So it took about two years of consistently me coming back to, so what makes this family the family West? What is it about? And they'd go, oh, it's the mission statement, it's the mission statement. <laughs> but anyway, we did tease it out, and we said, what kind of family do you want this to be? Yeah. And they said various things, and I, of course, wrote it down and typed it up. Uh, and some of the things they said were, we want this to be the kind of family we can bring our friends back to at any time. And we, there were various things they said, and we wrote them all down. And I wrote them into a family mission statement, this is what we were about, and um, typed it up. And then I think it got filed somewhere. And years later, when the last one went to university, I found this piece of paper. And I was astonished to find that everything that we'd written down, that was the family we'd become. Oh, wow. And I was amazed by it. Everything that they had said, so they'd said, they basically said an open house. So we lived out that value that we'd decided together. And that meant that when they went through their teenage years, ours was the house that all the parties were held in. Yeah. Ours, was the, ours was the house everybody gathered in. Yeah. Ours was the house that people knew that they could always sleep and have a bed. Ours was the house we'd come down to say, who's sleeping here tonight? Yeah. And all our kids knew growing up, they could always bring someone back to our house, that that was okay. There would always okay. be a yeah. safe space for them and a place for them to sleep. Yeah. And it was really, yeah, interesting. It's fascinating to hear you talk about that because we did the same. We got the seven habits of did effective you? family. Yeah, I loved the mission statement, but I was always amazed how long it took us to put one together. So I, I'm really encouraged you say Two that years. anyone listening to this should know that actually, <laughs> yeah, in order for them to really own it and yes. be part of it, it, yeah. it isn't a one-hit wonder. No, it isn't. It's something that you have to sort of develop over a... I don't think it took two years, but it certainly took sort of nine months or so before yeah. we got a cohesive list together that yes. that people could buy into. And of course, one person might have put one thing, and another might put another. But we we were both in the in the we were all in agreement that we were going to support each other's that's right values, and that's when it becomes you know a community, mm. doesn't it? And it's interesting because one of the things I learned from someone else, um, I sometimes wonder if I've had any original ideas in my parenting <laughs> journey at all but I can't claim credit for any of them but this was an idea from someone else who was further ahead in the parenting journey than me we need those and yeah. and he said that it's really good to have rhythms and rituals in family life yeah. that build culture and family values yeah. and traditions 
and he recommended this tradition they're going their family called family evenings yeah and so every friday we would have family evening and we would eat in the lounge which was all very exciting because we didn't normally yeah and we would have things like pizza and crisps yeah. and you know those sorts of foods and we would play board games and they loved it yeah. and then once a month we would have super family evening and super family evening was all of the above plus a film plus a sleepover in the lounge where we would all sleep in sleeping bags and the children loved it they loved super family yeah. evenings and those kinds of things we used to have drinks and biscuits in the morning and i have to tell you that our children were teenagers and they were still coming in for drinks and biscuits in the morning oh they were really they were longer than the bed and they were still coming in for drinks and biscuits oh. and we all we just always did that and people said to me oh how can you cope with the crumbs in the bed and it's true there were crumbs in the bed but we thought it was a small price to pay. It was a really important connecting time. Yeah. And Guy would bring all the drinks up on a tray with the biscuits. Mm. And then on birthdays, it would be chocolate biscuits. <laughs> and Love drinks that. and biscuits became a thing. And it was really, really important. But it, it helped build. And our, our kids were going on family holidays. We only stopped um, just after my eldest son got married. So we were still going on family holidays for a very long time. Mm. And we kept thinking, in a minute, they'll not want to. But everybody did, because they'd built such a sense of friendship mm. as mm. a group of siblings. Mm. And still, there's such a friendship with them. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Belonging. But it was interesting. I said to our eldest son when he went to university, I said, is there any feedback you want to give me on parenting? And he gave me a few things. And, and then I said, what about the fact that we could only afford to go camping? We couldn't afford to go on really nice holidays. And he was really adamant about it. And he said, I loved those camping holidays. And one day when I have a family, I'm going to take my children camping. Mm. And I think it's interesting, isn't it? We can kind of be sold this lie that the good parent is out there providing fantastic holidays or experiences. Mm. And actually, it's time, it's the simple things, it's going on walks, it's having drinks and biscuits, it's mm. having family evenings. It's going camping in a second-hand tent. Mm. It's, it's having ordinary fun. And that's, that's what they remember. Mm. And time is such a challenge, isn't it? Because I know that, you know, quite often you'll ask someone how they are and they'll say, oh, so busy, so busy. Busy seems to be the mantra, doesn't it? Mm. And um, I, I don't know anyone who isn't busy, but how, how do you say to a young mum, gosh, you know, careful of that busyness? Sometimes we need to look at our busyness and say, have I just brought too many things into my life? Am I trying to do too many different things? Or secondly, am I, am I aiming for perfection? Does it really matter that this, this ironing isn't done or this room's a mess? Does it really matter? Is that what's going to be remembered yeah. in a few years' time? I don't think so. Mm. And so I think it's about sort of keeping in mind... What is it that Stephen Covey says about starting with the end in mind? Mm. You know, knowing mm. what it is you want to achieve. What kind of family do you want to have? What do you want your children to be like? Mm. What kind of confidence and self-esteem do you want them to have? What kind of person do you want them to be? Yeah. And keeping that in focus. That's so interesting. We've come a full loop. We've started with, you know, what was your goal of parenting? And you've ended by saying, you know, what kind of a family 
do mm. we want to be? Mm. And that's such a hard question sometimes. When I do parenting courses, we start there. What kind of a mm. family do you want to be? In fact, the first chapter of the book is, you know, what mm. kind of people do you want to grow? Mm. Because we will be parents to adults mm. for an awful lot longer than we'll be mm. parents to children, won't we? And uh, looking ahead and taking time to get out of the present and looking at the end game mm. is challenging, but it's such a brilliant tip you've ended on there, actually. Where are we headed mm. and how do we get there? Tanya, I have loved chatting with you. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface. I know mm. we could go on for hours, but thank you. You're so welcome. Thank you for your insight. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your wisdom. I know that for me... Um, as a young parent, I would always sort of see what older parents were doing and see what they were up to and see where they'd gone wrong and where they'd gone right. And I think for someone to just sit and listen to this, you know, and, and they've got a young family, um, there'll be so much richness for them to take away. That is so true. There was so much richness in there. We ended up roughly where we started, didn't we? But we stopped in so many interesting places on the way how to establish healthy connections, what is happiness, what is attachment, whose problem is it, key question, not over-managing our partners and being prepared to learn from our own children. I loved that. And if you like what Tanya says about the family mission statement, do pop back to podcasts 29 and 30 to hear how to put one together for your own family. And one thing that I thought was particularly brave was how she asked her children for feedback as they left home. That's very daring, isn't it? I love a courageous mama. But I did have to phone her and ask her what her most courageous move was as a parent afterwards because I clean forgot to ask her. And she shared this. She said, my daughter had been travelling in Zambia and got appendicitis. So I packed a suitcase and prepared to go straight to her. And she's a woman of faith, so she also shared, I prayed about going and I felt a strong sense that I shouldn't shoot out there and rescue her. And she says, that was the most courageous thing I've ever not done. All I wanted to do was hop on a plane and rescue her. But I just had that strong sense that that wasn't right. And her daughter Emma now says, that was the right decision and a pivotal moment in Emma's life. And she said if her mum had come out and rescued her, she'd have deprived her of a valuable learning and growing that came out of that time. She said it was instrumental for her. She did recover, you'll be pleased to hear, and she even zip-wired across Victoria Falls. That's the kind of courage that is not for me. <laughs> so a really hard and courageous decision for a mum who, with all her heart, wanted to get on a plane and I bet if you're cuddling a little one you cannot imagine holding back from a moment like that. If you've enjoyed this podcast pop across and have a look at the book the links in the show notes. Also you might be interested to know that Madeline sees parents privately to chat through parenting issues. Contact her on the email address in the show notes. Thank you for joining me and Tanya. I'll see you next week.